Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, on this week's episode I'm joined by Mark Bernard, the Vice President of Hockey Operations for the Chicago Blackhawks. Bernie spent 30 years in hockey, from his playing days as a goalie, to coaching, management, and as you'll hear in this podcast, everything in between. St. Bernard's a living legend in Norfolk, Virginia, and his name appears on the Stanley Cup three times for his work with the Blackhawks. He's one of the best storytellers I know, and he played for John Brophy, so you know this is going to be a fun episode. Enjoy! Thanks so much for joining me today on Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. It's so exciting to have a fellow alumni of the Norfolk Admirals, somebody that I've known for quite a bit of time, and we've crossed paths on several occasions during our careers. And I wanted to kick it back to that time frame, to the Norfolk Admirals, and how you ended up back in North America in the first place and led you to your current role with the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, that seemed like it was kind of the genesis of it. So if you could just describe your current title with the Blackhawks, what you do, and then how you made that first connection uh, with the organization just over 10 years ago now. Well, first, Mike, thanks for having me. Um, I've always been a big fan of yours on the ice and uh, now off the ice with your podcast. But um, it, it was really uh, a unique situation. I've been uh, coaching over in, in England, in the United Kingdom, where I also had played for four seasons. Uh, from 96 to 2000, and then came back to North America for a little bit. And I was uh, just wrapping up my second year in in the UK as uh, basically I was uh, the general manager of the building, general manager of the team, the head coach. And uh, that year I ended up being the starting goalie as well. And I got a phone call from a a longtime, one of my, you know, my best friend, Al McIsaac, who we played together back in 1991 uh, for the first time and for the Hampton Roads Admirals. And he was uh, working with the Chicago Blackhawks and their American Hockey League uh, affiliation was with the Norfolk Admirals and he was the general manager. So Al reached out to me. It was a, it was late on a Thursday night with the time difference over in England. And he said, uh, they're going to uh, hire an assistant general manager here in Norfolk. I recommended that they hire you and told them that you'd be perfect for it because they want someone that can do a little bit on the business side as well. And I said, oh, that was, that'd be great. I was really excited about it. He goes, the problem is, can you be here tomorrow to interview? <laughs> and I said, Al, I'm in, I'm in England. And he's like, yeah, I look, there's a 6 a.m. flight tomorrow morning. And I said, I'll be on it. And uh, I flew over and uh, on the Friday night met with, uh, sat and met with Ken Young, the, uh, the owner at the time of the Norfolk Admirals. And, um, you know, it, was a great meeting on the Friday evening and then we met again Saturday and by late Saturday afternoon I had accepted the job as assistant GM of uh, of the Admirals and uh, you know that was kind of my my first introduction into life with the Chicago Blackhawks. And now 11 years later your current role as vice president of hockey operations team affiliates really your primary duties deal with Rockford right so maybe just go into your your everyday duties that you have to do in Rockford, in Chicago, how you bridge the gap between those two? Well, you know, it really started out, uh, this is going to be my, I guess, my 12th year now with them. And uh, I primarily at the very beginning was was running Rockford as the general manager uh, day to day and um, was actually president of that organization for the first two years I was there, running the business side as well. And then, uh, you know, things really progressed to the point where about, I think, seven, eight years ago, 
we just uh, they were they asked me to move my office into Chicago. Uh, as I was always in there, it seemed like two to three times a week for mi- meetings anyway. Um, you know, right from day one, the Blackhawks have been outstanding to me. Uh, I've been in on every meeting, you know, whether it be amateur scouting, pro scouting, traveling with the team, especially during the playoffs. Uh, in there, like I said, for, for trade deadline and free agency. So when Al McIsaac and Stan both approached me and said, listen, we want you in here full time. Uh, that was tremendous. So I, w- I worked full time out of Chicago. And, and as you said, my my main job is to oversee the Rockford Ice Hogs as the general manager. And then about a year, year and a half ago, they changed my title to vice president of hockey operations and team affiliates. And, you know, I'm still looking after Rockford, uh, but now have an assistant general manager there assisting me, Nick Anderson, who's a, a brilliant young man that uh, is able to take some of the load off me so I'm not in Rockford on a day-to-day basis so I'll go out there one or two times a week Um, I've lightened up my load a little bit on the travel side and traveling more with the Blackhawks I still see a lot of games I think last year I think I saw a little over 130 games between the two teams um, because I still want to have a good feel for the team in Rockford and and who's developing well and who's ready to make that next step so when Stan Bowman will you know, come to me and say, Hey, we need to recall a forward or defenseman. I have a good feel on who's, who's capable of coming up, but it's been a, an unbelievable ride for the last 11 years. And uh, hopefully it goes another 11 because the Blackhawks organization from Rocky Wirtz and John McDonough all the way down, you know, our first class. And it's, it's been a tremendous ride. We both have a love affair with Norfolk for sure. I mean, I did two tours there. You're basically mayor of the city when you show up in town, but to come back and go to Rockford and do something different to stick with the Hawks franchise, I know that was predicated because of regionality. And that's a shift in the American Hockey League that we've seen where teams are trying to bring their affiliates closer for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned. So how has that relationship, having Rockford you know, hour and a half down the road, benefited the Blackhawks versus being further away like it was in Norfolk? Well, in Norfolk, it was a two-hour two hour flight if, uh, you know, so if a uh... At the time when I went into Norfolk, our general manager was was Dale Talon. If Dale or Stan wanted to come down and you know watch a game, it wasn't a one day event. They had to pretty much come for two or three days to make it worth it. And uh, it was a great, you know, obviously Norfolk was tremendous. Will always hold a, a big place in my heart. You know, I played there for a long time, and I came back. Uh, for a second time tour duty for one year to play before I went over to England and then uh, went back as the, you know, as the first as the assistant GM. And when I was there for probably about a month, month and a half, uh, Ken Young promoted me to president of the team there. So I ran all the business operations as well for two years for him. And it was kind of uh, it was a weird situation after the first year, Dale Talon, when the team was moving to Rockford, uh, wanted to hire me at that time. But the current owner of the Blackhawks, uh, Mr. Wirtz, Bill Wirtz, uh, really didn't want to bring any more people on board at that time. So Dale just told me to be patient, that he'd get me on board. And uh, I was still fairly young at that time. I was 37 years old and I was president of American Hockey League team. So, you know, at my point in my career, I was in a really good spot. So we got a new affiliation with the Tampa Bay Lightning and uh, I was with them for a year in Norfolk. And then... It was in November of that second year that uh, 
you know, Bill Wirtz passed away and, and about a month later, Dale called me and said, listen, we're going to get you in here at the end of this year. I want to meet with you and you'll meet with John McDonough and, uh, and we'll probably be good, which is exactly what happened. And, you know, with the proximity now being in Rockford, it, it's just wonderful. And you mentioned it, Mike, you know, all the teams would love to have their American League franchise uh, very close to them. And you've seen that shift in the American League with so many teams moving out to the Pacific Division out West and, um, it's been fantastic, you know, because now whether it be John McDonough or Al McIsaac or Stan Bowman or myself, we can run down to Rockford just for the morning, watch them practice and be back in the office by one one thirty in the afternoon. So it's really worked out well. And I think it's great for our players because they know that the management of the Blackhawks of the big club is, is always right there. They're always watching. They're always under the microscope and, uh, you know, I think it helps with everything from, from practice to the games. And it's nice for a player. You've been there. Like, it's nothing's worse than you. You keep looking up in the stands to see if anyone from the big club's around. And you haven't seen anybody for two, three, four weeks. And um, this way, they see someone, you know, every week someone's in the building watching. And uh, it gives us a great read of our prospects. And it gives our prospects uh, motivation to, to do their best. You touched on something really important there in that, as players, we really crave feedback. And I've been on teams and in organizations where exactly exactly like you said, it felt like nobody was there. There was no line of communication. So having yourself or somebody else there to give that to a player, it means so much. I'd like to flip back at this time, though, to your playing career. And really the biggest reason why we've probably forged the friendship that we have is because we're both goaltenders. And I guess we'll call you a former goalie. I know you can still put the pads on and kick with the best of them, but <laughs> let's go to the genesis of you as a goaltender because you started out only playing a few games in the Ontario Hockey League. You went to Tier 2 Junior in Canada and then ended up in the ECHL. So it was a rather unique route. If you could just describe how you ended up in Johnstown playing pro hockey uh, in 1989-90 and starting your pro career. Well, it, it was a unique route. You know, um, when I was 16 years old and coming up for the OHL draft, uh, you know, they ranked the players two or th- probably about three or four times throughout the year. All the players that, you know, can be involved in the OHL draft, which at that time was uh, Ontario, um, I think a couple states, neighboring states like New York State and Maine, um, up, in the, up in the New England area as well that were eligible at that time for the OHL. And, you know, they'd come out with these ratings. And at the time, myself and uh, a, goal, a goalie that Olaf Coles had actually talked about the other day on your on your show was uh, Rick Tabaracci. You know, we were the same age. And, you know, one ranking would come out and I'd be the number one goalie. And then the next ranking would come out, he'd be the number one goalie. And, you know, at the end of the season, uh, I think I was ended up number four because uh, our team got beat out of the Junior B circuit. We got beat out in the first round. And, Rick Tabaracci's uh, midget t- or tier two team. I went on to win, I think the Centennial cup, a goaltender by the name of Peter Ng, his, mm-hmm. uh, his midget team won the, uh, I think it was at the time it was called the pure later cup. And then another goaltender, Jason Musatti, uh, his, he was a, an underage. He got drafted high. His Bantam team had won uh, for all of Ontario. So I ended up drafted, you know, in a high spot for a goalie at that time into the OHL with the Hamilton Steelhawks. And uh, I was with a coach that, you know, I I just didn't get along with. And I've never had any issues with coaches ever since then. Um, but it was one of those situations where I, I played very little, uh, if you look on paper. But for two years, I, I, I just sat at the end of the bench. And, uh, you know, 
it was a nightmare, to be honest with you. I, I really had a bad experience uh, in junior hockey in the OHL. Um, and I love the OHL for, for, you know, developing players. And it was just my experience was, was very poor. And it got to the point after my second year, we moved, uh, the team moved to become the Niagara Falls Thunder. And about a month in, three weeks in, I ended up quitting hockey. I absolutely uh, just hated hockey at the time. Um, I was, like I said, it was in my third year of junior hockey, and I just absolutely didn't want anything to do with it. I was mentally just exhausted. I had no confidence in myself. And, uh, you know, this was back in the days when the coaches used to just be screamers and yellers and uh, tyrants, and uh, that's what I was playing for at that time. And I was sitting at home and kind of figuring out what I was going to do, and um, I, I owe a lot to this man. His name is Ray McKelvey. He was running the Junior B team up in Owen Sound, Ontario. It was the year before they went into the OHL, a team called the Owen Sound Grays. And Ray called me and said, you know, I saw you as a 15, 16-year-old. And, you know, what's going on? Why aren't you playing? And I explained it all to him. And he said, listen, come play for our Junior B team up here. If you're not having fun by Christmas, go home. No questions asked. But if you're having fun, great. We'd We'd love to have you here. So I thought about it, talked to my mom and dad about it. And uh, it was about two hours, two and a half hours north of, of Hamilton, uh, where I live just outside of Hamilton. And uh, I made the trip up there and decided to go try it. And as you know, when you get up, when, you, when you're playing and you're happy and you're enjoying the sport again, you play your best. And I joined their team, I guess it was mid-November, and uh, I ended up being the MVP of the team. For the, for the short time I was there, I got named MVP of the team and, and I had a great season and had a lot of fun. And I don't know who saw me, but someone from the Boston organization saw me and I went to like their rookie camp. Uh, it was in Hingham, Mass at the time. And um, they ended up sending me to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which was their ECHL affiliate. Uh, and the coach was Steve Carlson, famous uh, Hanson brother. And obviously, uh, Johnstown is where they filmed Slapshot. So I made my uh, my journey there, and I was there for training camp and uh, told I was going to be on the team. So I, you know, I, I was all happy and excited about my first contract coming up, and I got called back in two days later. I thought signed the contract and was told that they just uh, had another goalie from Boston assigned down. So they sent me back to junior because I had one year remaining of eligibility and they told me they were really happy with me. So when I returned home, um, you know, my mom and dad always had a rule. You were either in school or you were working. And because the college years had, al- had already started and I was done high school, I got a full-time job. And uh, you'll laugh at this, but from six to two every day, I was working in a meatpacking plant. And... Uh, at the time, uh, my girlfriend's father, now my father-in-law, helped get me the job. And my job every day was uh, was to uh, basically shoot the cow. <laughs> you were an executioner. I would, uh, every morning. And <laughs> I was an executioner. And, uh, oh, man. You know, working on the kill floor and uh, working in the, in the slaughterhouse until <laughs> 2 o'clock every day. And then I would go play junior hockey at night. And, you know, there were a lot of days I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, is this my life? But... Um, Steve Carlson called me. It was middle of uh, January, I guess it was. It was like a Wednesday or Thursday evening and kind of in a panic mode said, hey, we've had an injury and 
is there any chance you could drive up to Erie, Pennsylvania and back up on Friday night and then come back to Johnstown and back up Saturday, Sunday for us? And I was like, absolutely, I'll be there. And five minutes into the game on the Friday evening in Erie, you know, I'm sitting on the bench, my first pro game, looking around and um, one nothing for Erie, two nothing for Erie, three nothing for Erie, four nothing for Erie. And all of a sudden I hear Bernie and I look and he's like, get in there. And I'm like, oh my, okay, here we go. So, you know, I, I jumped in the net and had a good game. I think I gave up two the rest of the game. And uh, they gave me the start the next night against the old Nashville Knights. And uh, I got my first pro win and they started me the next day in the afternoon against the Knoxville Cherokees. And uh, I know we lost the game, but I think I had like 40 something saves and I went in at the end of the game. It was an afternoon game. I went in and to thank Steve Carlson for the opportunity and, you know, please keep me in mind for next year. And he said, no, you're not going anywhere. I just cut the other goalie. He goes, you're staying here for the rest of the year. So I couldn't make the phone call quick enough to my boss at the uh, meatpacking plant to quit let him know I wasn't going to be there the next morning. <laughs> and, uh, and it all went from there, you know, and um, Steve Carlson uh, gave me an opportunity to play pro hockey, but if it wasn't for um, Ray McKelvey and Owen Sound, I probably wouldn't even be in hockey because he uh, talked me into coming back. And that was my introduction into pro hockey. And, you know, Johnstown was the last place team that year. So it was kind of baptism by, by fire. We, uh, we didn't, we weren't a very good team, but it was a great experience. And, and, got my feet wet into pro hockey. Do you think guys from your era appreciated it more? I mean, you were out there killing cows. Rod Tugnut almost became a trash collector. You know, Don Beaupre was running concrete. It just seems like the landscape was so different than it is today, don't you think? Well, you know, I think uh, a word that comes up a lot now is entitlement. You know, it really came through probably three or four years ago. I was doing our beginning of the year meeting. You know, I don't address the team very often because that's not my job. That's... uh, you know, the head coach in Rockford, that's his job. And uh, usually I'll say something at the beginning of the year and maybe uh, you know, I'll go in at Christmas to wish them all a Merry Christmas and then something at the end of the year. And other than that, that dressing room is, uh, you know, for the head coach. But I was talking at the beginning of the year and just we, we were having a team dinner on the road and I, I wanted to see, you know, get to know our new players. So I asked them, tell me your, your favorite summer job. And we probably had about eight or nine rookies that year. And only one of them had had a summer job Hmm. and I was shocked. And I said to our head coach, I go, this is the route, you know, the direction it's going, you know, these kids, you know, when I was growing up, you had a summer job, you know, whether it was cutting grass or whatever you were doing, working in a Canadian tire for part-time, you were doing something during the summer and then you were training. And now it seems like, you know, it's, it's been a big shift. A lot of these kids don't work in the summer. They, you know, they're training and, um, probably, you know, mom and dad are helping them out quite a bit, but it has really changed. You know, when I was playing pro hockey, I worked, you know, I wasn't making a ton of money. So like I was working every summer, like, uh, I came home from Johnstown that year. I, I got a part-time job or a full-time job working in a, as a car detailer for, uh, an auto body place. And then, you know, the next two summers I had my own little like landscaping business where I could kind of control my hours. I had 20 lawns that I would cut. So I would cut like you know, four lawns, five lawns a day, but I'd be done by 11 o'clock every morning. Then I could go play hockey in the afternoon and go to the gym. And um, it only kind of hurt my organization, uh, organizational skills when it rained because now you're, uh, you know, backed up a few lawns. But I, you know, I would do that. Then I, when I went over to Europe and I actually was making real money, 
Uh, I remember the first year I came home and I'd saved all this money. And I said to my wife, oh, my gosh, I can't believe, you know, what we saved. And um, she's like, yeah, you start working for my dad in two weeks. <laughs> and he owned a, a tire company. So I worked for him for five summers. Like I'd go to Europe or come home and I'd work for him every summer. And, uh, but I, I really felt that, you know, when I was working those jobs, cause none of them were easy come the middle beginning of September or middle of September, when you're going to training camp, you hit the road running because you knew how hard real work was. And now you're getting to go play hockey for, uh, the other eight months of the year. And you really appreciated it. You're right about that, how playing in the ECHL, summertime, a lot of it, you do it out of necessity. I used to run goalie camps. I like doing it. I like giving back. But let's be honest, I was doing it to make some money. And you're not making a lot. You know, It's not <laughs> something that you can bank and have a whole summer's worth of cash on hand unless you got parents that are well off. You know, And it wasn't until probably my, I don't know, third or fourth. By the time I made it to the American League, that's when my job became year-round hockey player, honestly. My first two years in the ECHL – you're a hockey player during the winter and you come home for summer and you're whatever you can scrounge up for a job. I want to go back to Hampton Roads here. You played three full seasons there. You won two Kelly Cups. You played for a legendary coach in John Brophy. I want to ask you first, good memory, one or two, maybe a Brof. And two, was that the high watermark winning those Kelly Cups and also being named the playoff MVP in 92? Well, you know what? I'm going to, my, my high watermark, I think, is almost like every season that I got to play pro hockey, to be honest with you. Um, coming from a small town, every kid growing up, you know, that puts the, the skates on wants to play pro hockey, but the actual percentage of players that actually do that is so minimal. And uh, every year that I got to put on the skates and earn a paycheck playing the game I love was, was a, a career highlight, to be honest with you. Like, so but getting to play, uh, growing up in just outside of Hamilton, Ontario, Toronto's 45 minutes away. I was well aware of who John Brophy was. And when I went there in, uh, 1991, you know, it was, uh, seeing him for the first time and, and realizing how hard he, he would push us. But, you know, the one thing about John Brophy that, you know, Olaf mentioned it the other day, Olaf Coles, was if you worked hard for Brophy, and uh, it didn't matter how much skill or talent you had. If you worked hard and had a great attitude and were a great teammate, he had all the time in the world for you, and he was going to make you a better player. And uh, a big reason why I am where I am today as a professional is because of the lessons that he taught me. And, you know, I remember when I first got to Norfolk, and, you know, Olaf played, I think, the first five games of the year, and um, the team, we went off to a great start, and, uh, you know, it had nothing to do with the way that Ole was playing, uh, more so as how we were playing as a team. And but I think we were oh three and two or something like that. And I was coming off the ice the one day and he, he called me goaler and he goes, Goaler, can you win tonight? And I'm like, Yep. And he goes, Okay, well, come see me in my office. And I hadn't played a game for him yet. And I remember I was walking down the hallway to his office, I was probably two feet from his office. I could hear him on the phone. And he's like, well, I'm trying to kid in the net tonight. If this doesn't work out, I'll call you back tomorrow and we'll bring your guy in. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Make or break and, it. Uh, Here we go. Yeah. And we played the Winston-Salem Thunderbirds that night. And I had a good game. We won. Um, you know, I got first star. And it was kind of like uh, for the fans, you know, and we had a terrific fan base at that point in the early 90s in Norfolk where we were averaging over, you know, almost 8,000 fans a night. Yeah. 
And, you know, they've been watching Olaf Kolzik, who's 6'3", and huge, and he looks like a monster in that. And you're and, not you know, quite 6'3". Come... You're a little no, bit under 6'3". Exactly. <laughs> in comes a kid that's 5'7", you know, <laughs> and just a little bit over the crossbar. And uh, and then I go in and I win that game. And it was funny. I still have a picture at my in my basement at my house. And um, out comes this great big, you know, bed sheet hanging from over the balcony of one of the, at the one end of the rink. And it had this great big St. Bernard dog in it with uh, my Jersey and number on them. And it said, this is his domain, St. Bernard. And that stuck with me in, in Norfolk, the whole, the rest of my playing, you know, everyone called me St. Bernard and they'd bark, you know, they'd bark when I made saves. And Come on. Would they play it, it like over the intercom? Time. No, no, the fans would just bark. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you got treated like you were, you got treated like you were a rock star there. And, that ninety ninety one season, you know, I had some great partners. I had, you know, Olaf Kolzig was there, and uh, I had another guy. He got sent down. We were affiliated with Washington and Detroit that season. We had a, a goaltender that came out of uh, Maine, Scott King, um, who went on now. He's a doctor. And then we, had, with about 10 games left in the year, we got one of Detroit's high prospects down, uh, Dave Gagnon, who had come out of Colgate. And uh, Dave came down and you know, played in the playoffs. I only ended up playing one playoff game. And you know what? At the time you're 20 years old, 21 years old, and you you know you're you, you're still a good teammate, but internally you're like oh, I should be playing. But you still work hard, and you know I played well in my one playoff appearance, and we won the championship, and which was just unbelievable. My first full year of hockey, and you're you're winning a pro championship. And I remember Bro pulled me aside right away after we won, and he goes this is going to be your time next year. This is going to be you. And I didn't think too much of it. It was great for him to say I returned for year two, but um, the funny story is during the uh, summer, bro called me to to do my contract. And, you know, I think I was making a whopping $275 a week, my first year. And, uh, you know, I played 23 or 24 games my first year. And I, I asked for $300 and he hung up on me. Not even a like, word, holy, just straight not up. Not even hung a up. word. I'm like, holy cow! He just he just hung up on me. So <laughs> I don't I have a job anymore. I'm gonna go back to killing cows. Yeah, like I still remember, bro. You know, back in the day before uh, cell phones, when we used to remember people's phone numbers. You know, we used to remember everyone's phone number off by heart because you had to dial them all the time. And I still remember dialing seven five seven six four zero one two one two as fast as I could, <laughs> and tell him, bro, no, I'll, I'll I'll play for two seventy five again. I'm good. I'll be there. And uh, he goes, good boy. And he hung up again. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, but the way that Brof is, he's got, uh, you know, a heart so big. And I showed up for, uh, for training camp, went in to sign my contract and, you know, lo and behold, it was $300. But um, my second year there in Norfolk, you know, playing for the Admirals. Now we had uh, Olaf Kolzig started the year down. And then Ole went up to Baltimore and Byron Defoe came down and they were alternating. It seemed like every two or three weeks. And, uh, I was getting a little frustrated and there was times I wasn't even backing up because at the time there was also a rule where you had to have so many Americans on the team. And we had a backup goaltender, David Cooper from Buffalo, New York. So when we needed uh, another American in the lineup, I would sit out and he would back up. So I was getting, a little frustrated and uh, at Christmas time, Brofa just kept telling me, Hey, be patient at Christmas. Both goalies are going to be gone. 
And sure enough, you know, at Christmas time, I uh, had played only six games. And I, I was like, okay, well, we'll see what happens after Christmas. And I pulled into the underground, you know, the underground parking there at the Scope in, in Norfolk. And uh, right away, I was looking around for, uh, I think, Oli drove an IROC. And I a forget Camaro? what Byron drove, but I was, yeah, and a Camaro. Oli had a Camaro, a white Camaro. <laughs> and uh, I was I'd looking around. I'd love to see to somebody pull into NHL like, camp in a Camaro nowadays. Nobody would ever drive a Camaro or a Corvette oh, to camp, you know, as a, like a rookie. Those you would know? be a classic now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm looking around and neither car is there. And I'm like, okay. And I get in the rink and neither one of them are there. There And I'm like, okay, well, here we go. And well, lo and behold, Brof didn't lie to me because I played the next 48 games in a row. Played the last 34 regular season games and, and 14 more playoff games on our way to capturing our second uh, Jack Riley uh, championship in the ECHL. And Brof again pulled me aside. We were in Louisville, Kentucky and pulled me aside right away and said, I told you, didn't I tell you last year this would be your time? And uh, he didn't lie. And sure enough, about a week later, after after we won, um, I signed uh, a trial contract to go to training camp with the Chicago Blackhawks. And uh, I went to camp with them in 1992. But, um, you know, it was phenomenal time, at you know, playing in, in for the Hampton Roads Admirals. We had an owner in Blake Cullen, and uh, that treated us like – we were NHL players. And I remember, you know, I needed uh, a new glove and I went in to see him and Mike, you know, better than anybody, how stingy ECHL teams can be when it comes to buying goalie equipment. Absolutely. And uh, Blake had been in major league baseball for years, a long time with the Chicago Cubs. And then also worked in the national league office running the umpires. And uh, I went in and I said, Mr. Cullen, you know, I need a new catcher. No, is it okay if I order one? He goes, he goes, you need more than one. You got to have a backup. You order two. Get two sets of gloves. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. You got to have a second one ready to go. And so about three or four weeks later, my two gloves come in, and I'm all excited. I got new pads and new gloves. And so I'm out for practice, and I, I leave my one glove on my stall. And Brof had a dog named Novi. It was a black lab. It was a beautiful dog that you know would just wreak havoc around the rink. You know, he'd run around the <laughs> rink while we were on the ice and. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember, Mike, but in Norfolk, they used to use the, um, the inmates. Yeah, to I was going to say, the did the dog go up to the inmates while they were cleaning? <laughs> yep. So the, you'd, you know, you'd be on the ice practicing and the inmates would be up in the stands in their orange jumpsuits cleaning up, you know, cleaning up from the night before his game or concert or whatever was in the building. And the poor inmates, bro's dog would be up there chasing them around. And, um, <laughs> so I come off the ice after practice, there's Novi, bro's dog, sit in the middle of the floor, laying down ripping my new glove to shreds, playing with it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I go into our owner again. I'm like, Mr. Cullen, um, I, I need to order another glove. He goes, another glove? You just got two. What's wrong? And I said, Novi ate my glove. And he just <laughs> shook his head and kind of mumbled something and said, I got to talk to Brof. And, uh, and it, sure enough, ordered me another glove. But that's the type of owner he was. You know, he was providing us pregame meals you know, at home and on the road. We didn't ever touch our per diem. He just took such good care of us. Um, our housing was fantastic. And, uh, you know, the hardest thing I ever did was after I was there for three years, um, I, I gotten, had gotten married, and my wife had a good job with, uh, with a banking institute up in Hamilton, and um, we didn't want her to lose that because that was stability. <laughs> As you know, life in the ECHL isn't too stable, and... Um, so I asked Brof if he would trade me to Erie, Pennsylvania, to the Erie Panthers, because it was only two hours from home. And 
my wife could come down on weekends and if we had a day or two off, I could get, I could get back home and we could see each other without her losing her job. And so Brove traded me to Erie and, uh, talk about going from the penthouse to the outhouse. And, uh, you know, the people in Erie treated me very well, but it was just, uh, it was not a very good team. It wasn't run very well. And the deal that Brove made with them was I'm going to trade you Bernie, but if he's not happy after the year, you and wants to come back, you trade him back to me. So after the year, I, I asked to be traded back to Hampton Roads, and they wouldn't trade me. Uh, they wouldn't trade me back. They said no. They kind of went back on the deal, and I, I was, you know, determined to go back and, and play in, in Norfolk, and they wouldn't let me. And um, I was sitting out, and our big rival uh, when we were in Norfolk was Greensboro, the Greensboro uh, Monarchs, and the Richmond. Renegades and the assistant coach of Greensboro was was John Torchetti, and uh, Torch went down to take over coaching a first year team in the Central Hawk League, uh, the San Antonio Iguana, because their original coach Bill Goldsworthy had become uh, ill. So a month into the season, John Torchetti called me and he he called you. He always called you Bubba. He called me and goes, Bubba, why aren't you playing? What's going on? And I explained it. He goes, Come play for me for the year. Then you're a free agent in the ECHL and then you can go back and play for Brof again. And I was like, you know what? That sounds like a good plan. And I went down to San Antonio and played for John Torchetti. And we were a, a first year club with, you know, my roommate was Mark Unetti, who's now the head, you know, the director of amateur scouting for the LA Kings. And, uh, you know, I think between, uh, between our house there now, we have, uh, we have five Stanley Cup rings, which we never would have thought back in, back in 93, 94. Especially with the San Antonio iguanas. Of all places, exactly, right? exactly, <laughs> and it was uh, it was a great experience. Uh, we played in the Freeman Coliseum, which is located right beside the current rink that the uh, San Antonio American Hockey League team plays in, and we were selling it out. We were getting great crowds. We had a good team, and uh, we made it to the finals, and we lost in six to Wichita. And um, I loved it there, but my heart had always been in playing for the Admirals, and I returned for the 95-96 season to play for Brof again and had a great year. And at the end of the year, I had had rumors that our owner, Blake Cullen, was going to be selling the team. And at that time, I had an offer to go over to England. It was my first contract that was more than one year. It was a three-year guaranteed contract. So I went into the office to speak with uh, Blake Cullen, and I said, Blake, uh, I'm hearing rumors. If you're going to sell the team, I'm going to sign this contract and fax it back. If you're not selling the team, I'm going to rip it up because I want to play here for you and Brof. And all he said is he looked at me and said, my fax machine is right there. Oh. And uh, that's that's all I needed to hear. And uh, I signed the, the, my contract to go, you know, start my career playing over in Europe. And uh, and off I went. And, you know, I didn't ever expect to be back in Norfolk, especially as an executive. But that's the way it worked out. But Blake Cullen and John Brophy, the way they ran that organization, it was like an NHL organization. You know, the way we were treated, the way the fans treated us, um, you know, you'd go out, you, you weren't allowed to pay for anything in town. People just took care of you. And um, it, it was a tremendous, tremendous experience. And my heart has always been there and always will be there. And um, I was so happy this year to see a former teammate, Pat Cavanaugh, purchase the Admirals and a former longtime teammate, Rod Taylor, taking over as the head coach so hopefully they can can get it back on track there for uh for the fans and and have more success 
holds a special place in my heart too. That's where I got my first chance in the American Hockey League, actually with the Blackhawks franchise in 2005. And I really envy the fact that you had some stability though. You played four years in one city. That's something I never had. I had a couple years in Portland interspersed. And I think it's something that we all crave and desire, but it's so hard to find when you're doing minor league hockey. I have to ask you though about Brof. I've got one thing that I remember about him personally is a friend of mine, and I think it was Zen and Kanopka told me this, that he showed up at the rink one day when he was playing for him, and they rolled into the building, and the visiting team had a whole bunch of stuff out to sign, sticks, posters, stuff like that, and it's a visiting team. He told me that Brof went up, grabbed a pen, and signed everything on the table, John Brophy, thousand wins on the visiting team stuff that they were going to give away to their all the, like the you know season ticket holders and things like that. Is there truth to that? And, and what year did you have the infamous bus story that turned into a furniture truck or eighteen wheeler? Which season was that in Hampton Roads? Well, you you never knew what Brof was going to do. You know, my first year with him in ninety ninety one, we were down in Knoxville playing the Knoxville Cherokees and. Uh, they were an outstanding team, really big, high-scoring team, first place in the league. I think they won the, the regular season title. We went into their building and down south, and we're walking out, and the exit to leave the building for the visiting team to go out to your bus was right by where the Zamboni was parked. Someone, I, I won't say his name, but he had white hair, grabbed the Zamboni keys out of the ignition <laughs> and kind of made a comment like, we'll see how fast they are tonight. And I didn't really think anything of it. And we get there, you know, later on for the game, and everyone in the building is in scramble mode because there's no second set of keys for a Zamboni down in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so they did it old school. They shoveled off the ice in between periods, and, you know, the ice was a mess from our morning skate still. And they just shoveled it off, and we played the game. And uh, I think we got a point, or we won it in a shootout or something. And, you know, as we walked out of the building, the keys were tossed back onto the Zamboni seat. and. We took our points and left. But, you know, he was always up to those kind of uh, hijinks. And, you know, he loved to show off his rings and his jewelry and his, you know, Brof was famous for wearing the bolo ties and the right. boots and, the you know, the leather, the snakeskin boots or snakeskin shoes. And you know, I think it was uh, 92-93 season. I, I was playing in, for the Admirals and I was with uh, my partner was Nick Fatusi at the time. And Nick and I had been friends since we were 15 years old. And we both kind of came into the league at the same time. And now we're partners together. And we were busing. We had played a game in Wheeling, West Virginia. And then we were busing over to Pittsburgh. And we were going to fly on the Saturday morning to Raleigh to play the Raleigh Ice Caps. And uh, we were one of the very few teams that would fly. That was just, again, you know, how professional our, our owner was. And we got, a, it's about an hour, 15, hour and 20 minutes from going to Pittsburgh. And we got about 15 minutes into the trip and it was, it was a snowstorm. All of a sudden the bus driver yells, everyone get down. So what do, you know, 20 hockey players, what do they do? They all stand up and look. And, uh, you know, we see this pickup truck, you know, on coming towards us sideways. And, you know, he spun out of control. We T-boned him and, the state police came and they told our bus driver that you can drive, you know, there's a truck stop half a mile up the road. You got to pull off because the front of our bus was so damaged. You got to wait for a new bus. You can't proceed. So as soon as we pulled away, Brof is yelling at the bus driver just to drive to Pittsburgh. And the bus driver wouldn't do it. And Brof was calling him a quitter saying, you're quitting on us. You're quitting on us. <laughs> so we pull into this truck stop and, you know, we do what 
20 hockey players in the minors would do. We're in there looking at all the uh, 10-gallon coffee cups and the, the back scratchers and the great big flashlights and looking at all the cool gadgets. And we're mulling around, and all of a sudden, Brof comes in and says, everyone get your stuff off the bus and be back here in five minutes. And, of course, you know, this is a, fan, a family-friendly show. Uh, Brof would use more explicit language than that. And uh, we got our stuff off the bus, and we're all kind of standing there in the snow and starting to shiver. And this 18-wheeler pulls up a few, few yards from us, and the driver gets out, doesn't say anything to us, but walks to the back of the truck and opens the trailer and looks at us, goes, yeah, get in, guys, go ahead. And we all look at each other and both goes, get in. <laughs> so we all start piling in the back of this trailer of this 18-wheeler, and it was about quarter filled with, with office furniture. And uh, there was one spot up in the cab, um, that we sent one player that, you know, no one really minded him going up in the front. The rest of us were in the back of this truck. Well, it was the scariest moment of my life. You know, you, there's no cell phones back then. So no one had, you know, any flashlights on your, like on your phone, the back trailer doors, you hear it shut, it locks. You all of a sudden hear the driver's door to the cab open and shut. Then you hear the release of those air brakes. And then all of a sudden the, the bumpiness starts and you all of a sudden it smooths out a bit, but then the wind is kicking up and you can feel the trailer kind of swaying a little bit. And we're in the dark. All we had was Rove had picked up a little pen light flashlight that he was holding under his chin and he was telling us stories about when he played. And I don't know who on our team had the wherewithal, but someone bought one of those old Kodak portable cameras and uh, took a picture of us in the back of this truck. And I have it on my phone, and I've shared it with players, you know, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you still have that picture. And it's, you know, all of us players in the back of this truck. And we pulled up in front of this JW Marriott or Radisson or whatever it was up front of the Pittsburgh Airport, a beautiful hotel. And, again, you hear the air brakes lock, the driver's door shut, and all of a sudden the back opens up, and we pile out like the bad news bears uh, while the people in the hotel are looking out at us and, I was rattled. You know, I did not like that. I was sitting, you know, I basically sat on Steve Pop's lap because I did not <laughs> like that ride. And uh, I heard I was you were a little bit claustrophobic too. Yeah, I didn't like it. I was supposed to start that night in Raleigh and uh, Nick Bustusi ended up playing because I didn't, I was a little rattled all day from the, from the night before. So, um, you know, Nick got the call and I think he had one of his games of his life where he probably had like 40 something saves and we got a, got a point out of it. But um and if I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that still also that trip was when we landed in Raleigh, there may have been a couple of police officers there waiting for growth <laughs> because of our last trip in to Raleigh. And, uh, you know, which wasn't, you know, wasn't, by that point in my career, it wasn't that, you know, abnormal to see that happen. But um, it's like they're waiting know, for the was, Hansen brothers outside the locker room. It, that's exactly shot. it. But, you know. Today, you know, in being in hockey management now, if uh, I would love to imagine how many phone calls I would be getting if we put our team in the back of an 18-wheeler. And uh, it's just another one of those stories that, you know, people do not believe that you did it until and then I'll pull up my phone and go, well, here's the picture. And uh, it was always something with Brof, you know. Like, uh, I got to tell you one quick story, though. Olaf Kolzig, you know, when we were training the one year, we – there was something in the building in, in Hampton Roads in, in Norfolk. So we kind of went on uh, up to Roanoke, Virginia to train for a few days. And I remember Brof putting us all in the pool to swim. And, you know, 
a lot of us jump in the pool and we're not world-class athletes. We're hockey players and we sunk to the bottom and basically ran across the bottom of the pool. <laughs> and uh, Olaf Kolzig goes in the pool and he is like an Olympic swimmer, you know, down and back. And he could have done it with me on his back and not even slowed down. Oh, he's built and like the an rest ox. of us are, yeah, the, the rest of us are scrambling and splashing around in the pool and Ole's going down and back like it's nothing. It, it, it was really an amazing time you know, the the East Coast League. And I'm so proud to be an alumnus of that league because where it started in 1989, I think there were seven teams when I started, to where it is now and the professionalism in that league. And, you know, we're, we do not hesitate to send our players to our ECHL affiliate is the Indy Fuel. We do not hesitate to send our players there to develop. And the number of players that have come out of that league you know, like just even out of Hampton, when you uh, the Hampton Roads Admirals, when you think of, you know, guys like Byron Defoe and Olaf Kolzig and and uh, Patrick Willeen and and Steve Pops and Andrew Burnett and Aaron Downey and you know just it keeps going on and on the number of great players that came out of that that ECHL franchise and um, knowing I was there at the very beginning of it and what is something special and uh, I have nothing but great memories of that league. I'm the same. Those two years I spent in Vegas were incredible. And it's not just because it was Vegas. It's because we were having so much fun. And part of it is because there just wasn't really any expectations for myself. I wasn't on an American League or an NHL deal. So it was purely for the fun of it. And we did. We had a great time out there. With those contracts, those contracts were day-to-day. Oh, yeah. Day-to-day. Basically, yeah. You could have been canned whenever. So you're just happy to to keep working for it. But it also kept you on your toes. Like you knew you had to perform every night, too, because you didn't have anything guaranteed in your pocket. What was it like those couple of years over in Britain? And especially later on when you became a player head coach midway through a season. I mean, it must have been absolutely wild to have that experience of being essentially retired for a few years. And then the next thing you know, you're coming out and, and doing everything in that building. Well, it was it was really uh, a unique opportunity that came up to me. It was We were just... Uh... We were in the playoffs first in 95-96. We were just kind of in the first round of playoffs against Richmond. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine from back home that he uh, he coached over there. His name was Scott Rex. And he called me and said, hey, Bernie, he goes, uh, they're going to expand the league next year. They're going to call it the Super League. And they're going to allow 12 import players uh, up from, I think at the time, they only had two import players. So the, the league was not great. But they were going to you know, really try and grow the league and you know, 12 import players, you could, you could do very well. And he goes, the the money's going to be good. And, you know, can you get me your resume? I'm going to be at the, the championships this weekend and I'll get it out to all the teams that are going to be in, in the top league. And they do their, their championships a lot like the final four here in North America. So all the coaches and teams are there. And so again, you know, this is 1995, 96 season. I faxed them my resume that night and I, uh, we got beat out on the Saturday night by Richmond. Sunday, I got called up to Rochester. So Monday morning, I'm sitting in a hotel room in Rochester, and I get a phone call from a gentleman by the name of Jim Fahirchuk. He coached the Bracknell Bees. And I had no idea what Bracknell. I had no idea. I knew London. That was what I knew in England. And so he calls me, and he, he goes, I want to offer you a one-year contract. And it was, you know, he named the price. And I was like, oh, okay. It was, you know, the exchange rate at the time was one pound, one British pound was worth $2.50 Canadian. So with the exchange rate and the fact that they paid for your housing and gave you a car, it was pretty good. It was really good money compared to the ECHL. And I said, well, let me think about it. And I went to practice and 
uh, an old junior teammate of mine, Jamie Leach, also playing for Rochester, goes, hey, I got a call from England today from a, from a guy. And I go, so did I. And he had been called by the team uh, by the name of the Sheffield Steelers. So I go back to the hotel after practice, and I got a, another phone call from another team, the Basingstoke Bison. And they offered me a two-year contract right out of the shoot, And a little, little less money in year one, but more money in year two. So I've always been, you know, I was always taught by my parents, you know, to be very loyal and upfront and honest. And so I called the, the gentleman that called me originally back, Jim Fahirchuk, and I said, listen, Jim, I had another call when I got back from practice. Uh, they offered me a two-year contract. If you can match it, I'll come to you because, you know, you called me first. And he goes, well, what team called you? And I said, I don't know, Basingstoke, Basingstoke. Well, I had no idea that was their big rival, and that was they were only 25 minutes apart. So he goes, I'll call you right back. And he mm-hmm. called me back, offered me a three-year guaranteed contract, and basically doubled my money. And I was like, if you fax that to the hotel right now, I'll sign it. And it was done. And wow. so I went over there, and it was a small rink. Uh, we were in one of the smaller buildings, our, our it was like a 2000 seat building and our, our owner, John Nike owned everything in town. It was about 45 minutes, I believe West of uh, London. Uh, the biggest uh, town next to us was Reading. They had a, a, a big soccer club, but our little town in Basing in uh, Bracknell, John Nike, our owner owned everything. So we had brand new cars and he owned the rink. And um, I walk into the rink though. And after coming from a, you know, North Hampton roads where you're getting 8,000 fans a night, I walk into this rink. I'm like, oh, this is nice. This is the practice facility. And he goes, um, no, this is our rink. And I went, oh, okay. And I had to really, you know, at that point, let my dream of going, you know, playing any higher than the American League or, or anything go. You know, because at that point, it really hit me. You're here to try and earn more money and enjoy the European experience. And I, I was there for, for two years. My third year, I, I got a bad injury. Uh, early in the season, which I had to have surgery on, and I was out 17 weeks. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know, to be honest, if I was going to play again because I had a hernia and my groin had uh, released. So I had to have my groin reattached. And I wasn't sure, you know, if I'd be able to play. So I missed a, a lot of that season. And when I came back at the end of that year, um, I came home from Europe and I was sitting at home healing. And, um, I went down to the Central Hockey League to a team that was out of the playoffs and, and played a few games just to see how my groin would hold up. And uh, I played awful. Like, I played absolutely awful. I had a winning record. But it got to the point where I was I didn't even want to be in net. You know, I just felt like if I was in net, bad things were going to happen. And I had never been short on confidence. And I came home after about three weeks down there, and I said to my wife, I go, I don't know if I can play anymore. I might be done. You know, it, it, I was having a lot of pain and um, I got a call from Kurt Kleinendorf who uh, Kurt, coached in the ECHL a long time. And yeah. And uh, Kurt Kleinendorf was coaching the Manchester storm who were owned by the Ottawa senators and Manchester was one of the big teams in England. They drew, they were averaging eight, 9,000 fans a night and his number one goalie was Frank Peter Angelo. And he said, Frank's getting a little older and I need a one, a one B and, I said, well, I told him about my injury. And he knew that I'd been injured. And he goes, well, this will give you an opportunity to kind of ease your way back into it. And I thought, you know what? This is a good situation. And I'll... But then came the, the bomb. Well, but I can't pay you what I was paying, you know, what you, know, you were making before because 
I'm paying a lot of guys high money and Frank's on big money and he goes, but I'll give you a lot of bonuses. You know, I'll give you X amount. If you're the number one goalie, if you end up being my number one goalie, I'll give you this much. If you're the number one guy in playoffs, if you make the all-star team and so on and so on. And well, I went over to Manchester and, um, my, I, my groin started feeling really good. And then Frank got injured and I ended up taking over and, and having a great season and really having a, you know, I was the MVP of the team and we did well and uh, I felt great. And it was just an unbelievable experience. Those four years playing in England were, were, were tremendous. And it was all North American guys, all guys that had played in the American Hockey League, ECHL, some ex-NHL guys even came over. And it was a high quality of hockey. Like most nights, the level was between uh, the ECHL American League, you know, better than the ECHL, but a little bit less than the American League level. And um, you had great crowds, like teams like Nottingham were getting 7,000, Sheffield was getting 7,000, Manchester would get, you know, eight, 9,000. It was, it, and the buildings were good. They treated you well. And it was just a tremendous experience. And uh, my plan was to go back. Um, and then the summer uh, was after, you know, the 99, 2000 season, uh, my wife was expecting with our first child and we made the decision. We said, you know what, we, uh, for the future, we want to, I want to play in the U S one more year so that my son will be born in the U S and have U S citizenship. But my wife, again, still had her job by now. She was the assistant manager of this, of that, uh, banking institution. So I wanted to be close to home. So I ended up working a deal out with Detroit and, uh, Toledo. They had a young goalie by the name of Aaron Miller. He's a, I believe he was a second round pick and they wanted an older guy to mentor him. And I was 31 now at the time. And, you know, I, I agreed to go to, to play in Toledo and they definitely paid me very well and took very good care of me. Ended up having another great year and MVP of that team. It was at the end of that season. I think I'd played 56 games and I had 30 wins and I had some twinging in my knee. And at the end of that season, uh, they operated and that was the end of it. And I was very fortunate. I was able to step right into a role in the ECHL as the assistant coach and assistant GM. And I, uh, I did that here in North America for three years before an opportunity came up to go back to England as the GM of the team. And after three years of coaching, I knew that that wasn't my passion. My passion was the management side. Um, when I worked with Claude Noel in Toledo as the assistant coach, I handled the salary cap, the recruiting, and I really enjoyed it. So I thought, you know what? I'll go to England as the GM for a couple of years, and I'll get more experience on that side of it. I'll do the coaching as well. But I didn't understand is when I got to England, and I sat down with the owner of the team, and he, the first thing out of his mouth was, well, you're not going to win. And I was like, pardon? And he's like, you're not going to win here. I don't give you a – I don't give – you're not going to win. I, I'm like, you never hear an owner say that. And he goes, I don't give you a big enough budget. You know, we were maybe a third – the budget of the big teams around. He was, I just I want two things, be competitive and we've got to stop losing money. They had lost, the equivalent was about 300,000 us the year before. And I said, well, you know, what about your staff? Like, how are they like to the people doing corporate sales and the merchandise? He goes, well, that's you. You're in charge of all that. I had no clue. I was taking on, I was an office staff of one. So now not only am I the GM and the coach of the team, I'm in charge of doing the corporate sales, the merchandise, you know, selling season tickets. I'm in charge of everything, like even writing the program, you know. So I had it all down where Monday by 4 o'clock, I had to have the program into the printer so it was ready for that weekend. Like I was doing absolutely everything, writing the press releases. You think, you name it, I was doing it. 
after my first year there, we had cut his loss in half. I think he lost about 140,000 US that year. We were very competitive. We lost a lot of games, but we lost a lot by one goal. And he was thrilled. So he made me the general manager of the building as well. So now I had a staff of about 35, 40 people working under me. We had a huge sports bar, so I had to go to uh, the local college and get my liquor license so I could be the licensee. And I'm thinking, what has this got to do with hockey? So here I am. The first thing I do is hire my wife to do the books for the building. Um, So I have someone there I trust, and I'm managing the building. And, you know, I'd be running practice. I'd get off the ice quickly after practice, take my skates off, jump on the Zamboni, do the ice, so the next group could get on the ice. On a Saturday night when the game was over at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, I hung around to the bar closed at 2. There was public skating after the games till midnight. So from midnight to 2, I would work on the ice and do edging and things like that. Anything in that building that had to be done, I was doing it. Uh, but then the the, the, the bomb dropped in uh, November. Beginning of November, I believe it was, my starting goalie walked into me. He was an import and uh, said, well, I'm going home. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll see you tomorrow. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm going home. I've had enough of hockey. I'm going to call it a career. So he, he was gone. And your backup goalie, your number five, six defenseman, and usually your your fourth line were all young British players. And the, the young British goalies, they were usually good enough to, you know, go in and play the third period, but they weren't really starters. And you didn't want to entrust them to be starters because they'd never been put in that position. So I'm sitting on my couch on the Wednesday night. My wife looks at me and goes, don't even tell me you're thinking what I think you are. She knew. And I'm like, I don't have a, I she don't knew. Have a choice. <laughs> and I hadn't had my goal equipment on, Mike, for four and a half years. Uh, from my last game were in Toledo in the playoffs. I hadn't had it on for four and a half years. And uh, I didn't even have it. It was in storage up in Canada. So my mom and dad got it out of storage. Luckily, one of the players on the team from Toronto area, his mom and dad were flying over. So they got it to them. They brought it over. Uh, I got it Friday night around midnight. I started Saturday night. I remember I was, it was like my first pro game again. I was so nervous. And we lost 6-5 in overtime to the Sheffield Steelers. The next night, we were in Nottingham, 7,000 people in the building. And the fans in Nottingham had always been really good to me. They knew what I was doing. It was, it was the buzz around the, the, you know, the English League. And when I stepped on the ice that night, they gave me a standing ovation. And you would have thought I was their goalie. Every save I was making, they were cheering for me um, because they knew what I had the undertaken you know, that I had decided to do. And um, I don't know how, but that we lost that night like 3-1. to one. I had 40-something saves. It was one of those nights where I'd fall down and it would have hit me in the pad or the arm. And Monday morning came, I couldn't get out of bed. I was too sore. So I, I practiced all week again looking for another goalie. Couldn't find one. So I start again at home on Saturday night. Now that's my third game. And I score an empty net goal late in the game. <laughs> which uh, was my second goal. I scored in uh, Toledo as well. So I scored a goal. And again, the same thing the next week, played two games. So I played six games now, but we ended up getting points in four or five of them. And a couple of the older players came into my office on the Monday morning and said, we want you, we're playing really well as a team. We want you to continue doing this. And I'm like, guys, my wife is six, you know, six months pregnant, five months pregnant you want me to be the GM of the building, the GM of the team, the head coach, and the starting goalie? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, let me let me think about this. And I ended up doing it, and 
and I played 37 games that year, and uh, it was <laughs> it was fun. It was stressful. Um, it was kind of fun writing my own press release, though. You know, kind of you know the Mark general manager and head coach Mark Bernard is is thrilled to announce the signing of goaltender Mark Bernard, but. Uh, <laughs> You and know, you got to list was, off your entire resume and all your accolades and have a little bit of exactly, brag session. That's exactly. pretty cool. Yeah. How far it was, into it the, was an experience? Yeah. How far into that season was it when you got to fix the boards during the game? Oh, geez, it was probably another month after I started playing. Um, you know, I knew the building so well, and I because I was fixing everything in it all the time, I knew how to do certain things. And there was an area on the boards in our zone that we'd been having issues with, and I, but I knew how to fix it quickly. And during the games, I had other managers on duty, so I didn't have to worry about like the Zamboni and those kind of things and the concession stands. And um, something happened again with those boards, and I'm in my net and I'm watching these two younger kids. They're trying to fix it. They got the drill out. I'm getting more and more frustrated as each minute passing minute goes by. And finally, I took my gloves off and my mask, sat them on top of the net, skated over, took the drill off them, and I fixed it myself. And as I'm skating back into the net, the, the PA announcer puts on the theme from Superman. And I kind of glanced over my shoulder at him like, really? Thanks a lot. And the fans are all cheering because I went over and fixed the boards. And then every time I made a save for a big save that year, he'd play that theme song. But it was funny that the I was getting a lot of grief from other coaches in the league because they were saying to me, do you know what? Our, our owners are all over us. They expect more from us now because of what you're doing. <laughs> and uh, it was a tremendous experience, you know, and, Looking back on it, I would not be where I am today without those two years in Britain of doing everything, doing corporate sales, of writing the program, of doing merchandise, of running up the pro shop, of starting the pro shop, of season tickets and dealing with season ticket holders and doing all those little things that, you know, the hockey average hockey player doesn't even think twice of by learning all those jobs, you know, I wouldn't have been able to go into Norfolk and take over as president of the team and run a staff. And I wouldn't be able to do the job I'm doing today for the Blackhawks. So everything, you know, where I am today, a lot of it comes from those two years in England, as stressful as they were, you know, I learned so much and it was such a, a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for me to, to do it. And it was at the end of the second year when I got that call from Al McIsaac and, and then off I went and who know, who would have known, you know, I get so many, when we won that first cup in 2010, I'm getting phone calls and text messages and emails from people going, two years ago, you were driving the Zamboni. Now you're getting a Stanley Cup ring. Are you kidding me? um, It it was just an unbelievable experience. Was it surreal to see your name on the cup after this incredible journey you've been on? The best conversation, you know, and like I told you, Al McIsaac and I have been best friends since 1991. You know, I was in his wedding and um, there's nobody that I would ever... you know, I would ever dream of even turning to if I needed someone in a moment's notice. I know he'd be there for me and, and me for him. But when he called me into his office and said, uh, well, you made the list. And I'm like, I thought, the, you know, the bad list. Like I did something wrong. I'm like, well, oh, what did <laughs> I do? do? What list? Yeah. And he's like, no, you made the list, the 52 name list. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you're going on the cup. And I went back to my office and I sat down and it didn't really sink in for real until the first time, you know, I saw the cup with our names on it. And like, you know, every kid in hockey, every kid that's picked up a stick and a pair of skates, 
they dream, you know, of winning a Stanley Cup and uh, to see your name engraved on, on it for the first time is just an unbelievable experience. And then to be able to experience that day with it and take it home and share it with my family back in Hamilton and um, the the minor hockey kit, you know, organization where I grew up playing, and uh, it was just unreal. It was just an unreal, you know, experience. And to be able to do it multiple times. Um, you know, you get, there's so many great hockey people out there that have never had the opportunity to, to lift, you know, the Stanley cup and, and to be able to do it three times. I'm very honored, blessed, you know, spoiled, you pick the word, but, um, you know, we're part of a very classy organization and in John McDonough and Rocky words, like I said, they do things the right way and they've enabled us to do things the right way by providing us the resources. So, you know, as, as many peaks and valleys as everyone's career has mine is definitely uh and the winding roads as you mentioned earlier it's it's been unbelievable and it's been a it's been a great ride does it ever get old calling yourself a stanley cup champion you know the biggest thing for me is being able to celebrate it with the people that have been behind us the whole way like my wife has been behind me from day one you know we've i've known my wife since uh, she was five years old i was seven at the time we started dating when she was 15 i was 17 and uh, so she's been with me through through all these journeys and all the injuries and uh, but she's been through that through everything all the moves all the travels and you know being able to share this with her and my my children is is the biggest reward you know that means everything and uh, you know that one of the best pictures on my wall is when we won in Boston and my son's on the ice with me and then when we won at home in 15 and having them in the locker room with us you know that's what it's all about um, because as you know, Mike, you've been through this, you've got kids, we can't do it without them. So getting to share those moments with them is, has been the biggest, uh, has been, been the biggest, uh, achievement for me. You're hitting me with all the feels now, Bernie. Uh, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so true because you look back on your career and you think about everybody that's been along for the ride and that's the coolest parts being able to share it. And I can't only imagine what it's like to, to do that with the Stanley cup. Bernie, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. You know, I thought we were getting close a couple of years ago to uh, maybe get into a Calder Cup Finals, and, and you stole it from us when you were with Texas. And, um, you know, what a show that you and Jeff Glass put on in the last game uh, where you guys won in overtime. But um, you couldn't have asked to watch two, be- veter- two better veteran goalies than yourself and Glasser. Talking with Bernie's always a blast. And a lot of times when you get off with somebody after doing an interview, you realize you missed something. So here's a little bonus content and a story about Nick Vitucci that we wanted to make sure everybody heard. So I was talking with Nick Vitucci before we were going to get on and record this. And he told me at one point in his career, he hit you in the face with a puck when he was on the opposing team in warmups. Well, first of all, when you're playing this game, Mike, as long as you and I both have, you realize that, you know, you, you need players high of character. Well, Nick Vitusi is one of those players. He's high in character, but the problem is he's also a very big character. And me and Nick had played together. We'd known each other forever. And we're in Charlotte, and I was very serious. Like, I was a very serious, like, when I was getting ready for games, and, you know, I was always, like, kind of highly wound. And Nick is, like, loosey-goosey all the time. So I'm stretching out by center ice, and... Nick keeps skating across. I see him kind of in our bench. And he, first of all, he takes my, my backup stick off the bench. Now he's skating back and forth across the red line. And he's shooting pucks at me. <laughs> and 
Here's the, he almost hits me in the head. He skates back and he rifles a puck at me again a second time. But his partner, Ken Shepard, is on the other side of the red line stretching. He hit his own partner in the head. Oh, no way. I thought he hit he, you. And, he hits his partner. No, he hit his own partner who was starting the game in the head. And he had to go for stitches. And Nick Patusi had to play the game. And in typical Nick Patusi form, stands on his head and beats us. So he was trying to get me. Then he's all laughing and joking. And you could see it in his face the minute the puck left his stick. Like, it was like slow motion, like Marsha getting hit with a football in the Brady Bunch. Like, <laughs> it hit his partner, cut him right open. Poor Ken Shepard that year had bad luck whenever the Hampton Roads Admirals came to town. Another game about a month later, we're playing them in Charlotte. Ken's walking out for the start of the game, stepped on a electric cord that was, you know, for one of the fans, an extension cord, stepped on it, blew a hole in his skate blade. Like, cause <laughs> the electricity, elect- and Nick had to play again. Unbelievable. But, no, Nick hit his own partner in, in his face. And, uh, I think that was the last time he ever did that one. Oh, poor guy. He just a black cloud over his head. I wonder how their relationship is now. <laughs> you know what? It's probably great because there's no better person in this game. Um, I'm very close with Nick and uh, we grew up, you know, 40 minutes apart and played, like I said, junior B growing up against each other. And um, he's like the grandfather of the ECHL. You can't mention the ECHL without m- mentioning Nick Batusi and uh, um he was a hell of a goalie, and he's uh, an even better person. Yeah, Hall of Famer. He was my assistant coach with the Portland Pirates for half a season and become a good friend of mine now. It's always nice to see him in the arena, and someday we're going to trade pucks because we both have a huge collection of them. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.